0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Post Podium, the podcast where former Jeopardy contestants are instead giving questions and asked to provide answers. I'm your host, Jarek Bruel, and in this episode, we will be continuing our coverage of the most recent tournament of champions. Last episode, I spoke to Tyler Rode about his TOC experience and run, and we also broke down each game in the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the special exhibition match between Amy Schneider, Matt Amodio, and Matea Roach. If you missed that one, I highly recommend you listen to that episode first because this episode will be all about the TOC finals. And joining me to talk about the finals is none other than Andrew He. Andrew is a 5 game Jeopardy! champion who finished the TOC as the first runner up, winning $100,000. I'll be asking him some questions about his initial run and what it was like to come back and compete in the TOC. We'll also be analyzing each of his games, including his quarterfinal and semifinal matches, in addition to the 6 game finals. As always, if you're interested in a specific topic, I've provided timestamps in the episode description for your convenience. We have a lot of ground to cover, so without further ado, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Post Podium. Let's begin with a simple introduction, your name, the times when you appeared on Jeopardy, and how well you did and finished. I'm Andrew
1: He. My first appearance on Jeopardy was November 10th, 2021. Uh, I won five games in the regular season, and I... Took home a little shy of $160,000 before I ran into um, Super Ultra Mega Champion. I made it through to the finals of the Tournament of Champions, uh, where I actually was able to win two games, but unfortunately I uh, lost to that same same Mega Champion, <laughs> the same one we all know and
0: love. Of course. So, Andrew, as I'm sure everyone remembers, your original run came to an end when you ran into Amy Schneider on your sixth game on the show. You lost on a Wednesday, so the third game of the tape day, presumably. My first question is pretty straightforward. Did you stick around for the rest of the tape day to watch Amy go on to win her second and third games? Yeah, 100% I stuck around. Uh, I was actually pretty pumped to see how
1: Amy would do. I think just as a competitor, you want to see you know, the person who beat you. like w- What happens to them? I distinctly remember that she really dominated her third game, which was the last of the day. And so at that point I'm pretty happy like I did enough to get invited back to the stage and the person that beat me is like very very good very deserving. So I definitely stuck around like even aside from seeing Amy you kind of want to get time with the other contestants like when you end when you end the day as a champion it's like a nice feeling but you have to hang back and sign all these papers so mm. everyone's gone by the time you <laughs> come back out. Like the fir- my first day like nobody was there so I didn't get to talk to anybody. And then the next day when you're when you you're kind of the returning champion, you all that social time that other people get to have, like you're doing makeup, wardrobe changes. You know, even though I, I lost like that second tape day, I remember it was nice, like being outside in the parking lot and talking to like Rebecca Clark, Jeff Myers, like Molly Carroll, who, you know, we obviously got to see play really well in Second Chance. So
0: that, w- that was just a really nice time. So to give everyone a sense of time, Andrew's last three games of his original run were taped on September 28th, 2021, and aired less than two months later, the week of November 15th. Amy would then go on to win a total of 40 games throughout the rest of November and December 2021, until her streak was snapped by Ron Talzma on January 26th, 2022. She didn't quite lap herself, meaning she was taping more episodes as they were airing, but she was very close to doing so. With that being said, Andrew... Was there ever a point during Amy's run where you thought about what could have happened if the wind had blown the other way, so to speak? I mean, just one more win added to your streak and the world wouldn't have known about the brilliance that is Amy Schneider. Yeah, I I can't lie. I thought about that a lot. Um, I was pretty surprised
1: by how much my perception of my own run changed as hers kind of unfolded. Like I said, coming out of the out of the studio after losing to her i had pretty much gotten everything that i had hoped for that i thought i could reasonably hope for um in that experience but then you know you kind of see you kind of see amy keep winning and you start thinking well dang how did i how did i run into basically like the toughest opponent of the season right and and as it kind of continues to unfold you still get people texting you like like she's still on there like you know you could have stopped this uh, <laughs> uh, but you know like I, I think like real talk like at the time like for sure Amy just plain new more stuff and like even if we kind of like go into the multiverse and we go back and I get that final jeopardy right I think in like a lot of those universes I'm I, you know my streak ends at like seven games nine games something like that And kind of like you said, the greater world doesn't know who Amy is in kind of those universes. And I think if you kind of look at, uh, you talk to Amy, you see how she's benefited from this experience and Mm -hmm. see what her run has meant to people. Like, I don't know. I don't know how you, like, say that this isn't a good universe compared to, like, me (laughs) winning, like, two additional games, right? Like, Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's my way of coping, but... (laughs) (laughs) So after your episodes aired, you had roughly 10 months to prepare for the TOC, which is a bit on the longer side of waiting out out of everyone who qualified. What did you do during that time? Did you do any additional studying? Were you watching the show regularly to scout your competition? Or were you more or less going about your life like normal? Yeah,
1: like, as you said, that's 10 months. uh, I don't know. It's very hard to rearrange your life to, you know, to kind of accommodate anything Mm -hmm. like like this, um, I definitely did a lot of preparation, studying, um, s- some scouting. I-, I definitely kept watching the show, but that was mostly mostly to track how it, how and whether I was I was improving. Mm-hmm. I don't think I did as much as I set out to do. Like in the in the early months, I don't I kind of don't have the the right discipline for that. But I, once I started to feel like the the time pressure of the TOC approaching, I was like, okay, I'm I'm just gonna like LARP as like an Olympian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, just do some ridiculous stuff like consolidate my meals into like (laughs) one large meal and like just be be pretty single-minded about it was that ridiculous stuff before or after they gave you the dates for the toc tape uh some it, it was kind of bursty i would say some of it was before i don't actually remember exactly when they gave us the toc dates it was it can't have been more than like two months out i think like two months is just really not not a lot of time to try to make all the improvements that you especially in this pool of contestants that you like really kind of need to be
0: for at least for me to feel to feel competitive here in the lead-up to the toc a lot of fans online had high expectations for amy matt and matea especially since they'd been automatically seated into the semifinals but outside of the big three a lot of people chose you as their quote-unquote dark horse pick to win myself included in fact if it weren't for your final jeopardy get rate during your initial run i probably would have put you above matea now, obviously, you were able to embrace your Dark Horse status by not only becoming a finalist, but also winning two games in the finals against Amy. But going into filming, did you feel any pressure to perform as well as, if not better, than you did during your original run? Or was that not something you were particularly worried about? So I didn't actually feel
1: very much external pressure. Uh, even, like you said, hearing the term like Dark Horse all the time, which, by the way, is very, very flattering... Uh, if you consider, like, if you consider who's in this pool, like, it's very, it's very flattering. I definitely listened to your podcast where you kind of... Oh, thank you. <laughs> ...ranked everybody and, um like, I, it, you know, it was kind of double-edged because I, I, I didn't want to get a big, big ego about it or anything like that. Or, or, or or you know, just, like, over-rotate on something like a ranking and overlook somebody. So there, so there wasn't very much external pressure, but I think I built up a decent amount of just internal pressure because... I do have like a competitive streak and I can kind of turn it on if I want to. I'm very very motivated by like negative or dismissive feedback and I'm kind of glad there w- there was like a tiny bit of that that I was able to find and all of it was very fair, so it was pretty useful for me. I think if you look at it objectively like going in, like the quarterfinalists who don't have buys, like none of us have more than like 5 like 5% chance to to win it all. I don't know. I it, like it, you you kind of can't really feel too much too much pressure mm-hmm. coming
0: in as just like a non-seated person. So, we're on the street is that you actually flew into Culver City really late compared to everyone else. Could you tell us what happened there and perhaps if there were any consequence consequences, excuse me, did it affect your state of mind going into or during your quarterfinal match at all?
1: Yeah, so as a refresher on the on the schedule, I think the normal schedule for most of the people competing in the TOC was to fly in on Saturday go through COVID protocol stuff on Sunday and then do rehearsal and the Jeopardy honors ceremony on Monday before the actual tournament kicked off on Tuesday. So I couldn't fly in on Saturday. I had a prior engagement on Sunday that I really couldn't miss. So I got approval from the producers to take like a really late night flight on Sunday night, trying to get in to Culver city around 11 PM. I had some flight delays, like LAX was kind of LAX. And so by the time I got to the hotel, it was 2 AM. And then, Um, I had to be ready for the uh, COVID test shuttle to pick me up at 6 a.m. So that was not a great, that was not like the best way to kind of set yourself up for success. I would say like the only real consequence of that was I was so tired during Jeopardy honors that day. It was like a really, um, it was a really great event, but it was a little bit surreal because it it felt like, it felt a little bit like being treated as like a minor celebrity. And I was just like (laughs) really tired and I don't know if I had, like, the same level of energy that some some other folks had. I mean, we also had promo photos. Um, but the most important part of that in my in my mind is, like, the 15 clue rehearsal that you get. And so my 15 clue rehearsal was awful. I'm not going to blame, like, the travel for any of that. I faced uh, John Folk and Brian Chang in that rehearsal. And I think out of 15 clues, I got in on one. Like, that rehearsal, like, was the first time I'd ever really felt defeated, helpless for any, like, real Real amount of time playing the game, and so
0: I I kind of had to deal with that going into the quarterfinals. I think that's all the questions I have for you about things prior to the tournament. Let's move on to the games themselves, starting with your quarterfinal match against 11 game champion Jonathan Fisher and four game champion Christine Welchel. First, let me ask you, did you have any pregame thoughts for this matchup? Maybe something to keep in mind about Jonathan or Christine that might change the way you play Um, maybe some thoughts you had about the tiredness you were talking about how you would you know deal with that so i was not when
1: this matchup was announced like i wasn't super thrilled jonathan covers most of my weaknesses like from a knowledge standpoint i think when that happens the randomness of the categories becomes like a really big factor and that's never like a great feeling because that randomness always exists but when there's not too much overlap and you know you're not necessarily going to be fighting over the same stuff, like all the stuff that I don't really, that I'm not super good at is like he it is like in his wheelhouse, right? So it's not great a great feeling to be at the mercy of the kind of like board composition. With Christine, I don't know if anybody really caught this, but if you look at the kind of uh, the official stats that Jeopardy posted um, with kind of like their proprietary buzzer data type stuff christine by the stats had top tier buzzer timing it's like matea sam matt amy christine talk about like my mindset coming in i know that jonathan and christine are both just so fast their timing is is so good so that's like just a tremendous x factor as far as the specific opponents affecting like the kind of the gameplay i kind of told myself that if like if i'm in double jeopardy and the board goes like pop culture heavy for example like so much of that money is going to have not my name on it like <laughs> either jonathan's name or christine's name on it so even if i kind of get my way and do the daily double hunting thing and find them early like on balance like i probably have to bet a bit a bit larger like the pattern the pattern of some of these these games is just like you're looking for the daily doubles in like places that are both like likely and places that you feel like you can convert them. So like the flow of the game, a lot of the times is like you find the daily doubles, you convert them, but then you kind of like start to bleed a little bit as, because the stuff that's at the end of the game might be stuff that you're, you know, you don't really want. So that, you know, there's not too much that you, too much that you want to fix for opponents, but um, that's definitely one of them to keep in mind. Like if you, if you have a notion of what they're, how their strengths overlap with yours like maybe you do some some wagering um, adjustments
0: in double jeopardy jonathan did not let up as he continued to win the buzzer battle according to geometry jonathan uncovered three to four extra clues and about thirty seven hundred dollars worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing in double jeopardy but andrew wasn't going to go down without a fight while he may have lost some opportunities to jonathan on the buzzer Andrew picked up roughly four to five extra clues and $6,400 worth of extra opportunities to answer by buzzing in on clues that neither Jonathan or Christine attempted. This plus the fact he found both daily doubles in the round helped him keep him in contention to win. Speaking of which, I gotta give you props, Andrew, for hanging in there even when you missed that third daily double. Uh, With half the board remaining, Jonathan could have won the game in a lock, but you managed to accumulate just enough to win if Jonathan got Final Jeopardy wrong. And... Dare I say getting that third daily double wrong might have worked in your favor since final was a triple stumper. I'd imagine Jonathan would have made a wager similar to yours if he were in second going into final and he would have won instead. Yeah. I think that's very I think that's that's pretty good analysis.
1: Final Jeopardy is like very interesting to talk about. Um
0: but you might have a question about that later so <laughs> possibly, yeah. Uh, Watching it back on TV, did you think to yourself, yeah, maybe I should have gotten that one, or were you perhaps too focused on the image of the coin to come up with Brutus, or was that clue something you definitely didn't know? (sighs) I would say,
1: if anything, I was not focused enough on the image of the coin. So this was a video daily double. They throw it up on the second screen, and maybe, like, a bit of a spoiler alert, like, there's this recurring theme in the tournament where, like, the video clues, for the most part, don't go my way. (laughs) As, like, an aside, um, like, maybe this is inside Jeopardy knowledge, but they... I think they moved the second screen. It used to be like a TV on the ground. Mm-hmm. I-, I think they moved it up beneath the score. So I don't know. Maybe that like messed with it a little bit or it made it harder for me to. Wait, they moved know, it
0: but... beneath the scores?
1: Yeah, it's it like hangs up right under the scores. Like when you, you look up into the left and that's where the video board. That's so was. weird. Why would they put it there? <laughs> I think that's where it was. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, like I remember having a squint and like kind of look up like up in the direction, but then look back at the clue board because, you know, the the text, they don't put the text up on the video board. Mm -hmm. They basically showed a picture of a coin with some daggers, and it has this phrase Eidmar that's written on it, and I think Eidmar is in the the clue. It's like an assassin's coin, basically. I think if you're listing famous assassins like in Jeopardy, there's probably a good argument that like it's like John Wilkes Booth and then Brutus is like the next name, right? I I, I didn't really process the... Like I was in like, this mode where I'm, like, I'm going to try to see if there's any, like, Pavlovian response that I get from this, Mm. and, like, I just couldn't move off of that, you know? Like, I think when I watch it at home, like, Eid Mar is, like, just, it's literally the Ides of March, right? Mm. But I think, you know, I'm reading the clue in my head, like, I'm not really listening to Ken too much, Um, like, EID, I'm like, oh, is that, like, Eid Mubarak or something like that? So I'm, like, I'm going down this, like, totally different path anyway. Like, when Ken says it's Brutus, like, I, 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 I'm I actually, like, really embarrassed, you know? Like, I'm willing to bet that, like, everybody else knows this one. And, like, I just, like, got the yips and I, I lose $10,000 right there, so.
0: What was your thought process like going through this final? I I had no clue because I'm bad at literature uh, in general is one of my weakest points. But I thought Holmes was a good guess considering how final clues in the TOC sometimes require a deeper set of knowledge.
1: Yeah, um... I didn't put like Holmes would probably I didn't feel great putting down Holmes like I thought even for TOC like maybe it's just like not it, it it's slightly deeper than than even the TOC would go maybe I don't know I think if you read the clue there's a lot of phrases that like kind of jump out but I wasn't able to really connect them anywhere there's a phrase I, I don't have the clue text in front of me actually Battle of
0: Lovell's Pawn Portland Gazette 1820 13 years old
1: Yeah so I think where my brain go- is going is like I think there's a phrase like his grandfather is in here right this poet's grandfather clearly like this is an American poet re- you know reminiscing about some battle that was fought like in, in the 1770s or something the real Pavlovian connection here is like the word Portland right Portland is Maine and Longfellow is like the main poet but I, I think I got fixated on like what poets have famous relatives right like I think that the only person I could really think of was Oliver Wendell Holmes, and you know that's not like a grand—it's not like a grandfather connection. There was some interesting context for this final Jeopardy. I think first, if you look at the category poets, if it's poets, like not poems, not—I don't know—it's it, it, probably under like fifty possible responses, right? It's kind of like if you make a blind guess here, you're like you'll be right a lot more often than if it was some like some other ca- like world cities or I, I don't know um actually world cities is probably a bad example but, um, <laughs> but you know you you can very reasonably blind guess this you look at poets and you're like I should be able to pr- kind of prime myself for this right but then th- the problem is that there's like the wager and everything kind of around that and and what happened here is that like the wager really occupied like really 99 percent of my time like I didn't really prime myself with possible like directions where i thought this clue might go like on paper it's really easy i have more than two-thirds of jonathan's score so if he bets to cover me like i make a small bet which is what i ended up doing but i think it was a little more complicated because the context here is like during the category reveal ken says something like our category today is poets jonathan we know you're good at plays but like let's see how good you three are with poetry and we'll be back And then I see Jonathan out of the corner of my eye. He gives, like, a little head tilt. He's like, I'm pretty sure he's grimacing. And then he makes, like, a, like, I think, I don't know if I'm imagining it, but he's, like, making an eh, like, type of sound. So I am standing there thinking, like, I saw this, you know? (laughs) Like, like, does Jonathan, like, dislike this category? Like, I don't actually know if Jonathan likes poetry or not. But, like, does this give away anything about what he's going to do? Like, is there a real chance he, like, doesn't like this and he decides to bet small, bet zero, something weird, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then you kind of, like, start debating yourself. You're like, well, okay, well, Jonathan is a trained actor. You know, is he trying to use his, like, well-honed powers to, like, do some chicanery here? <laughs> a lot of the final Jeopardy wagering, I actually took, like, the maximum amount of time. This might have been one of the ones where someone had to come over and say, like, we need a wager from you. It actually really pained me because I thought there was a, I thought there was a good chance that, like, Jonathan might might like really not like it ultimately i didn't read his reaction as like a bluff i thought he wasn't trying to act and he was actually doing kind of giving like giving off a real tell if you will but i I guess it just worked out
0: then you bet to cover and then you went with a small wager beat him by two dollars yeah which is
1: very which is
0: really really fortunate are there any other categories or clues that are worth mentioning before we move on there's a funny one because um in the
1: crocodile pop category which jonathan runs like i see that category and i'm like there there is definitely a crocodile rock question a crocodile rock clue is definitely going to be in here and then it does come up and i'm excited to see it and then i'm really sad that i didn't get to get a, get that one my girlfriend's in the audience and her parents have shown me like ch- her childhood videos and that sort of thing and like one of the ones that we always watch is like her little song and like age five song and dance to crocodile rock and so I know that she's in the audience and she's seeing this, and she's the same thing is going through her head. So it, it was a little painful not to not to get that one. There's always those types
0: of clues. I get that feeling. <laughs> yeah. So you beat Jonathan and Christine. I assume you're feeling pretty good, knowing you'll get to play the next day. After watching the rest of the quarterfinals, whose win impressed you the most? I think it's probably John Folks
1: because he. I mean, he. I think he had the only luck game, right? Uh, uh Sam. Um, Sam against uh, Zach. Oh, and right, right, right. Yeah, I, I both of those were really impressive. I it, it's hard for me to pick. I would probably say I don't know about most impressive, but like my favorite my favorite of the quarterfinal games was Eric, Jackie, Jaskarin. Personally, like Jaskarin was my <laughs> was my dark horse pick. And then just seeing Eric and Jackie like watching Eric and Jackie play, like they are like my playstyle like brethren, if you will. I think if you look at that game, you know, Eric converts like uh I think it's, like, the back-to-back all-ins. And then Jackie just has this, like, amazing comeback. She's down, like, 15,000 or something. And she, like, claws back to make it a game. I found that to be really
0: impressive. Um, It's probably understated. That was probably, in my opinion, the most balanced quarterfinal match. I know it was, like, arranged by seating, but just thinking about it, I'm pretty sure that was, like, the most balanced it could possibly get. Uh, between the quarterfinalists
1: i I think if you've played enough like kind of offline practice style games with people who are in the same realm as you like you know that like games like that can kind of very easily go anyway Mm -hmm. right if you're able to play that game like a hundred times like you get a
0: pretty you get a pretty good distribution of wins for every Mm -hmm. single one of them yeah totally assuming the producers wouldn't put you in the same semifinal match as amy between Matt and Matea, were you hoping to play against one more than the other? I was
1: so convinced they actually would put me against Amy. I think I know now that there there is like an unofficial rule of kind of you postpone the rematches until they're absolutely necessary. But I think like one of the subplots of the TOC is just like think about like the sheer rematch potential that we had in this TOC, right? Uh, like you have Matt and Jonathan, uh, you have Ryan, Eric, Megan, right? They all. Uh, that was, like, the lineup succession, I guess. Yeah. Like, you've Christine, <laughs> Margaret Maureen, and then it's me and Amy. Uh, I'm probably forgetting some, um, but that's a lot, right? Like, after the quarterfinal round is over, like, all those possible matchups are gone. Like, it, it's just me and Amy, I think. If you have this, like, kind of subplot of of rematches, like, maybe you try to cash in on one of them. And so I actually thought that <laughs> that that uh, I would be facing Amy, and, and I don't know, like... Maybe I even had a slim preference for that because, like, you want y- you want the rematch, right? Like, there's never a good time to play against Amy, but, like, you know, you want the rematch. I think maybe the stats angle um, that I think uh, you and a lot of other people have dug into is that Matt and Amy are, by the stats, maybe on a separate tier. So there's an argument that maybe you want to play Matea, but Matea's also... <laughs> the best player on the buzzer. Like, mm, sure, in sure, the data sure. by, by a pretty big margin. Yeah. I think it's something like, like the official stat is like something like 71% of buzzes successful, which is just insane. And then you watch them win the exhibition where they they also get like a really tough final that Matt and Amy don't get. And so you're like, I don't know. I don't want to play Matea. <laughs> <laughs> and the matchup between me and Matea, it's like a little bit like the Jonathan matchup where I don't know if our strengths really overlap. So the answer, it's so the answer to your question is like, not really. I, I didn't really have a preference. I think begrudgingly do a rematch with Amy is what I had in my head. Mm. I think some people were telling me, like, you're not going to get put up against Amy. But in my head, I was, like, very ready. Mm.
0: So you were prepared for that possibility, even though everyone around you was like, no, nah, they're going to save that for later.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I wasn't. I didn't, I didn't know as firmly as maybe
0: other people knew that maybe they don't do rematches. So since you were the last semifinal match to tape, I assume once Matt, John, and Sam were called, you had some time to prepare for your matchup against Matea and Eric. Did you have any pregame thoughts here? Anything to keep in mind about these two in particular that might have changed your approach to the game? I was really, really
1: nervous before this game. We were in the Wheel of Fortune studio watching the game on the monitor. The the end of Matt, John, and Sam, like the end of the semifinal, the Final Jeopardy question, like I just skipped out on that and i went to go like sit in the bathroom for like a couple minutes just to get <laughs> kind of get it together the main thought is is basically you have to go for broke and i i don't know that's i i knew i knew that eric was gonna go for broke if he got the the if he got the chance to do it i think like tendencies wise you don't think matea is gonna do it but i'm pretty sure matea like evolved from the original run i think they said In interviews, that they would be more aggressive and I think I remember that too on Inside Jeopardy. Yeah. yeah. And so you you have you kinda have to take that into account and be like, you just wanna squeak your way into the finals, right? You just you just wanna you just wanna
0: make it through. Any way to do it. (laughs) In the Jeopardy round, to no surprise, Mateo was the fastest on the buzzer, getting in fifty-eight percent of the time and earned about twenty one hundred dollars worth of extra opportunities to answer through timing. Andrew, I actually don't remember this, but you had a couple of negs early in the round, which briefly put you in the red. And while you were able to get out of it rather quickly, you had an unfortunate timing with the first daily double, only being able to wager the table limit of 1,000. Could you tell us more about what happened there? As a quick refresher, the correct responses to the clues you were ruled incorrect were puppies, David, and Papusas. Of these, uh, like, I think these
1: were... I can explain the logic behind, you know, like I can defend my own logic to myself on these, these negs. Like you never really want to have like this many in like before the first commercial break, basically. Um, I do want to talk about the pupusas clue, which is basically just a video of a pupusa. And the clue is like this food is common in El Salvador, is as common in El Salvador as the taco or something like that. My problem here is that like my brain goes to arepas instead of pupusas. They're both very, very like Tasty, not an indication of, like, a personal food ranking or anything. But arepas is not the right answer. I got in some trouble for missing this. My girlfriend's sister-in-law is Salvadoran. And uh, we've actually spent, like, an afternoon together, like, just making pupusas. And then, unfortunately for me, there's a restaurant I walk past, like, pretty much every day close to my house. That's a giant sign that says arepas. It doesn't say pupusas. It says arepas. You know, some wires get crossed. And uh, post-pupusas, I am down, like, 5,000. 5,000 magic beans and um, I know there's at least a couple people who are gonna like angry emoji text me for this answer but it's still early it's like still right before the first commercial break hush puppies that's just like you're still in like your pattern matching mode I would say like your your flashcard, just like see thing say thing I see like a brand of shoes plus like a do- a dog and my mind goes to Buster Brown. I'm pretty sure that Buster Brown dog is like not, is a bulldog and not, you know, it's just like the thing that you say. You like, you you don't, you, you, you an think some you think one head. thing and then say something
0: else, basically. Yeah. Right?
1: And Old Testament Kings, I know that they, it, this is not, this is not my strong suit, but uh, I think somebody, yeah, someone had already said Solomon. So I was like, okay, it's, it, it's 50-50, right? And like, I, I was pretty convinced that it was,
0: the, that I was going to say the right one, but I didn't. <laughs> When Tyler was on the last episode of the podcast, we were wondering if your dislike for Manny Patinkin uh, was motivated by your secret distaste for the guy or the fact that you'd have to play through a video category. For everyone listening, do you mind setting the record straight? So I love that Tyler is, like, trying to stir the pot here.
1: I don't I don't, I, I don't know what you actually recorded, so. <laughs> um, but uh, for context, I decided to go for this Manny Patinkin category knowing that it was, a like, a video category. And I think I, you know, like... I was feeling, like, a little comfortable. I ad lib something, like, let's just get this out of the way. And then I realized that it kind of, like, makes it sound like Manny Patinkin is, like, my enemy or something <laughs> like that. Um, but, like, no, it's just, like, you know, I'm looking at this category. Uh, it's, like, in the most important Jeopardy game so far. And I'm, like, this is, like, this is inconceivable, for lack of a <laughs> better word, right? Like, th- this is, like, not a wheelhouse category for me. And it's also, like, a video category. Which is like a huge, it's just a huge rhythm breaker in any game. If you look at the $800 clue in this category, it was like deadly. It was a very simple clue about like the Yiddish language. But after the clue text like ends, there's like five seconds of Manny Patinkin singing in Yiddish. (laughs) So like you're just, like, totally at the mercy of, like, the uh, enabler. It's incredibly hard to, like, time your buzz. Obviously, the video categories are, like, fun to watch at home, but, like, in the context of the game, I was just like, no, like, not a video category in, like... And I didn't expect to know anything about Manny Patinkin, but it turns it turns out I knew, like, a couple things,
0: so... I don't hate Manny Patinkin. <laughs> I have nothing against Manny Patinkin. I think it'd be remiss of me if we didn't talk about your all-in wagers on the second and third Daily Doubles, Once you got the second one, I knew you were going to do it, but the third one caught me completely off guard. I'm pretty sure I screamed, Are you insane? at my television. Walk us through both of those daily doubles. You didn't exactly find them back-to-back like Eric did in his quarterfinal match, but within five clues, you were able to quadruple your score and then some. How much of your decision to go all-in was motivated by A, your general play style, and B, an urgency to counter Eric? Because if you ask me, I think... The two of you play very similarly, and that you're not afraid to go aggressive when the situation calls for it.
1: I think you're right that it was motivated by both of those things. Like generally, I try to play aggressively, and then at least for the, the for that second second, the first daily double of the of double Jeopardy, there is an urgency to counter not just Eric but Matea because there's still a daily double out there, and you know that both of them are willing to double up if they find it. So f- for for that first daily double, it's like twelve hundred it's the $1,200 clue in world leaders, which is like just a good academic type to category. It's like, it, it's a pretty easy decision. Like, like you said, you could probably predict that I would, I could, I would go all in here. The last all in, I think this is probably questionable. It works out in the end, but it's, it's definitely questionable. Like I try to take everything in category dollar amount. It's uh elegies for 1200. So medium difficulty clue, but it's in literature category. So it's It's probably pretty good. And then you kind of take a look at what categories are left on the board. I have this, like, mental math heuristic to kind of assign the remaining value to my opponents. And I I think I got a little tripped up doing that that math. And so, all of a sudden, you know, it's, like, already been, like, 10, 12 seconds. And Ken's, like, I think they cut out a lot of this time, my deliberation time. I actually took kind of a lot of time trying to figure out what this wager was going to be.
0: So, wait, the hesitation on your face wasn't you, like... Hmm, Should I go all in? It was more so like you trying to assign that math to Matea and Eric.
1: I mean, in the process of trying to, yeah, it, it, it's in the process of trying to decide like what what the wager is going to be. Like you know, like all, always all in is like a decent heuristic. There's not too many situations where you're giving up like a ton, a ton of like win up win percentage by going all in. Yeah, there was
0: still plenty of money left. It was the seventh clue of the round, too.
1: Yeah. If you see the way the game played out, it's, like, very, very tempting to say it was for sure the right decision. You know, I talked to John Folk about this, and, you know, it's probably a little bit result, results-oriented to to think about that. Like, you're, you're thinking about how Eric played the rest of that game, and you're like, that is the only way the rest of that game plays out. But I don't think that's necessarily that true. That, like, I think in a lot of the cases, like, Eric doesn't, or Matea, they don't make, like, that big of of a run. And so I have, like, a really big lead at that point. Like, I think I have something like an $11,000 lead. Like, maybe, maybe bet like, 11000 instead of 16800 uh, 16, It kind of accomplishes the same thing and protects you a little bit on the downside. So, you know, in the moment, I, I, I probably, like, flipped out, like, a, just a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit of, like hubris like oh this is your roger craig go all in moment that's my take on the on the daily doubles there
0: are there any other categories or clues that are worth mentioning before we move on
1: yeah i i have to give a shout out to alex jacob for one of these clues there's a 1600 clue in the religion category that's basically about a high-ranking buddhist a buddhist figure who is not the dalai lama and so the only reason that I knew that this was Panchen Lama is because I'm in Alex Jacobs' School of Trivia League, and I missed a really, really similar question, and I made a note of it. And so he definitely deserves like a shout-out
0: for this particular clue. Is this your endorsement for School of Trivia? Uh, how much am I being paid? <laughs> <laughs> Love to ask Alex after uh, this podcast. All right, moving on to the finals of the COC. It was a heated showdown between Amy, Andrew, and Sam. First of three... And U3 almost went the distance. The series lasted 6 games, Sam won game 5, Andrew won games 1 and 3, and Amy won games 2, 4, and 6. Starting with game 1, I thought this was a fantastic opener to the finals. There were so many lead changes throughout, and by the end of Double Jeopardy everyone had a decent chance of winning the game. According to the Final Jeopardy win matrix on Geometry, Andrew had a 50% chance of winning, while Amy and Sam each had a 25% chance. Andrew would win in the event of a triple correct, Sam would win in the event of a triple stumper, and Amy would win if she got final right and Andrew got final wrong. Once again, Andrew showed absolutely no fear in going all-in on the first and second daily doubles, picking up $9,600. Sam found the third daily double, but he was unfortunately incorrect, costing him $6,000. Had he gotten that daily double right, it's likely Sam would've been first going into final, and who knows, maybe he would've taken the first game of the series. Some other stats, best on the buzzer this game was Sam getting in 52% of the time, and earned about $4,700 worth of extra opportunities to answer through timing. In terms of getting the most value out of their successful buzzes, which is basically a longer way of asking whose incorrect responses hurt them the least, that would be Amy, only getting one clue wrong costing her $2,000. For Coryat scores, Sam finished with the best Coryat at 18,000, Amy at 14,6 and Andrew at 10,8. And finally, a fun fact, aside from three triple stumpers and Sam's miss on the third daily double, there were zero incorrect responses in Double Jeopardy. With all that being said, Andrew, how did it feel to not only win the first game of the series but also to be the second person who's ever defeated Amy Schneider in a game of Jeopardy? Okay, so on on paper,
1: like, I should be super thrilled at this point, right? Mm-hmm. But I think on the stage, it's ki- it, it, it honestly is, like, a, a bit of a mixed bag. Having the first win is really great. Having it be the rematch win is, like, even better. It's super validating. It's like I can hang. But, like, like you said, outside of the daily, daily doubles, like, Amy and Sam, the board, they're just, like, kind of knocking me around. So even though, you know, there's all that good stuff, like, the next game is in 20 minutes or so, and, like you just like have to try to fight off the imposter syndrome that like you stole this one it kicks in just like a little bit but yeah like on paper it's like everything that i would have asked for if you told me that that would happen like before the tournament i would be like thank you
0: (laughs) the final jeopardy category for this game was geography, which makes sense after the clue was revealed but it wasn't as obvious to me watching on tv what did you make of this category and how much of it affected your wager if at all I didn't really know what to make of it.
1: Again, it didn't seem super broad. I think if I had a blind guess here, it would be something related to, like, the Shah of Iran or uh, the Rohingya people, maybe. I thought it would kind of be, like, a history question in disguise. So the category is, like, always, you know, it's always going to be, like, an input into whatever process you have for wagering. I I thought all in all, the situation here was pretty straightforward. Kind of as it turns out, the clue was about current events, and I just read about this current event of... um, the president of sri lanka uh,
0: resigning i was kind of relieved to get to to finally get this final jeopardy right are there any categories or clues in game one of the finals that are worth mentioning before we move on yes i have one that is
1: really fun to mention i have to call out uh there was a clue about the office it was about kate flannery who plays meredith so she actually uh, uh on twitter she noticed that she had made it into a jeopardy clue and she tweeted about it and it just so happens that i have like a treasured photo of me and my friends this is taken back in like 2007 in LA where I think we're on spring break or something and we're driving around this parking lot and we just like see her and Oscar in uh, from the office in the parking lot and we just like drop everything we're doing and we ask for a photo so I have this you know kind of old photo of uh, me and Kate Flannery and so I tweeted at her and I said thank you for helping me win this game and she saw it and she got really excited and it was just like a
0: I don't know. It was, it was a lot of fun for me and me and my friends. Next up, game two of the finals, which featured a very strong performance from Amy in spite of Andrew maintaining a lead for most of the game. Sam was still the fastest on the buzzer getting in 50% of the time, but Amy was really able to excel in double jeopardy by buzzing in on clues Andrew and Sam weren't attempting. Doing so allowed Amy to pick up about $5,600 worth of extra opportunities to answer in the round. On top of this, Amy had only one incorrect response the entire game, which cost her a mere $800 in potential value. As such, she had the best score on buzz percentage at 96%. Andrew was in the league going into final with a $1,000 margin with help from the first and third daily doubles, picking up a total of $13,800. Unfortunately, a triple stumper and a conservative wager from Amy was what allowed her to win game two and secure her first win of the series. Andrew, I noticed in Double Jeopardy that of the five triple stumpers in the round, four of them came from the first-time responses category. Clues, whose responses. that have never been on the show before looking back on it do some of them seem obvious to you or are you still mystified by the clues in this category
1: i wouldn't say any of the clues in the category were just like utterly mystifying i think they're just generally very fair things to know that you know you might have encountered but like maybe because they're not popping up all the time in j archive like none of us really fully internalized them to like really that degree uh, for some of the other answers makes sense i will say like despite how bad we were in that category like I really like categories like this. It does like kind of have a tendency to like expand the Jeopardy canon a little bit. Um, Everything, like like I said, everything is somewhat familiar. I'm 100% sure that we all used, that everybody in this tournament probably used J-Archive to prepare. And this category is just like the writer's way of being like, oh, that's cute. Like you, <laughs> you thought you could just like pattern match your way through this game. <laughs> like, like Jarek, I know you're a fan of video games. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't this like exactly like how you would balance... A game like you know people are overusing the strategy of like leaning on jr oh or something yeah like for that. sure so you're just like let's nerf this a tiny bit right so <laughs> like, like at a the- like on a theoretical level i like it like i don't- but i don't want to be the one playing it you know
0: yeah a little conspiracy there for you guys listening names the same was the final jeopardy category for this game which sounds like it could be an easy clue since you probably have two ways of getting to that same name was that perhaps a reason why you were comfortable wagering to cover amy or were you always planning to wager to cover if you were in the league going into final regardless of the category. Yeah, I think you're spot on.
1: The category is pretty much telling us that the clue is going to have multiple ways in. So in this situation I just thought a cover bet would be fine. As for, you know, like always planning planning to do something, like it's really hard to say that you'll always do something. Like if you always if you say you're always going to make the cover bet, like that definitely makes you a bit exploitable. And that's, you know, there there's some neatness to this format where like you start to get to see, like, first of all, you get to know people's tendencies. That was something I kind of, I didn't really pay I- enough attention to, I would say. Tendencies can definitely evolve in this this type of format. So if you're going to say, I'm always doing something, like, maybe that's maybe that's too predictable. Maybe, so I, I don't know, maybe I'm not going <laughs> to... Uh, maybe i should maybe i should just
0: stop talking (laughs) (laughs) game two of the finals was actually the last game of the tape day so you were able to get some rest at least i hope before returning to the studio the following morning heading back to the hotel late in the evening can you recall what you were thinking about on the shuttle ride back maybe an adjustment to your final strategy planning for a last minute cram session or was this more of an opportunity to you know get in touch with yourself and decompress some of your stress and anxiety that entire
1: night was, I think, very stressful. Ordinarily, I'd be thrilled to be tied. And I definitely was, like, <laughs> at certain points in the night, just, like, kind of mentally going through. Uh, but it was really a roller coaster. I know that there was one thing I was kind of beating myself about up about um, that night, which is that, like, all the things that I did in my preparation, like, out of all the things that I did, like, I didn't really think through the, some of these implications of the best to three and like one i'll give you one example which is after every game ken comes out like you you know you do you you kind of do the overheard segments ken comes out and he's like one of the things he asks about is like what's your rationale behind the wager and then you get to hear kind of what everybody else is saying and it feels like at first like any normal segment but then you realize that in this i think it can take on like a lot of importance in this type of format right like what is said there what's not said there Like it has a big, it could have a big impact. Like are people revealing things? Is anyone bluffing? Like, should I be bluffing? Like, should I, (laughs) like one thing I didn't, didn't ever think about was like, that Ken would come around and ask me like, Oh, like what's your plan here? Like when you, like just kind of like how you, you just asked me like, what is your plan here? And it never crossed my mind that like, maybe it makes sense to sometimes like lay the trap. If the situation makes sense, that's just something that I, I, I just felt like in the few hours that I had that night, like I, couldn't really analyze that situation to be like how should I be like listening in there like what should I be saying I think if we see this in the future like I would love to see like some some mind games I think there's not too much mind gaming that happened between all of us there's one moment where Sam at some point in response to a Ken question basically was like I'm going all in all the time (laughs) I'm just like is this real (laughs) like are you actually like I, I on some level I believe him right but it's like can you actually trust like is this a trap
0: normally you don't like you don't think <clears throat> too deeply about this but um
1: that was one of the things that really stressed me out
0: so game 3 of the finals it's the first game of the day and by the end of the jeopardy round i think it's safe to say all 3 of you benefited from a night of rest because the scores were pretty much even amy and andrew were tied at $3800 each while sam wasn't too far behind with 3600 Andrew found the first daily double as the 11th clue in the round, but he was only able to wager 1,000 since he had less than that amount. In Double Jeopardy, Amy found the second daily double as the 6th clue in the round, but unfortunately she got it wrong, which cost her 5,000. From there, Amy had a relatively quiet remainder of the game as she went 11 clues without a successful buzz from clues 14 to 24. Meanwhile, Andrew found the third daily double as the 20th clue in the game, and seeing as how he had less than half of Sam's score. He went all in, and went into final in second behind Sam by 1600. It's also worth noting that Sam had zero incorrect responses in this game, answering all 18 of his successful buzzes correctly. Up to this point, I'd argue Sam this was Sam's best performance in spite of having a lower Koryat score. He had the best Koryat in the game with 14,800, had an accuracy of 100%, and went into final in first. One correct response in Final Jeopardy was all it took to give Sam his first victory. And he could have, based on the controversy this final clue generated online. Apparently, Hebrews was incorrect, and Romans should have been accepted as the correct response. This would have meant Sam would have been the only one to get final right, which would have awarded him his first win in the finals. Andrew, while your response was neither Hebrews or Romans, I'd still like to ask you about what happened with this final. Was there any discussion of this clue among the three of you or with the other TOC folks while taping? Was it ever disputed or brought up to the judges? Because while I certainly didn't know the answer to this one, a lot of biblical scholars and fans of Jeopardy were pretty upset on Sam's behalf.
1: The three of us definitely didn't notice that anything was amiss after after this, was, uh, this sort of happened. It was just kind of on to the next game. When it aired, I think pretty early on, um, even before it kind of got around to most of like biblical scholar internet, um, I heard through the grapevine that some people in the audience like actually did predict that this would be a, con- like they noticed something, but it, this wasn't something that we discussed. If someone noticed there were, there was just a lot going on and I don't think people really brought it up. I don't really have the expertise here to, you know, I, I think it's been, it, it, it has definitely been played out on Twitter, like internet. It's definitely fair game. <laughs> If I had gotten the win with an asterisk, like, I don't know, maybe that's fun. Like, honestly, I might take that. I'm just glad that uh, it, it played
0: out the way it did, I guess. Before we move on to game four, I have to give praise to your 3201 wager here, because if you got final right, you'd win not only if Sam wagered zero, which could have happened since he'd done it twice in the finals already, but you'd also win if he got final right and wagered up to 1599, which is one less than the difference between your scores before final. You beat Sam by two dollars if he got final right and opted not to wager to cover, which is something I didn't discover until quite recently. In fact, in my own game, my optimal minimum wager to finish second should have been twelve instead of six oh one to account for this possibility. Did learning wagering strategy slash game theory come naturally to you? Because for me, I remember spending a lot of time on J Archive, timing myself to do the math on an index card in less than five minutes for almost every probable scenario. I
1: wouldn't say this came naturally to me. Uh, I had to do exactly what you did in terms of the index card math, learning all the different scenarios. I do enjoy math. like I enjoy thinking about like the strategies of games and that sort of thing. And so maybe that like disposes me, like predisposes me to to like pursue that angle towards trying to get better at the game. But, um, I think there are so many scenarios that they don't really like appear frequently enough for you to, like, feel like, oh, I know what the natural thing is to do in this situation, right? And so there are honestly many, like, many days in the, it, uh, leading up to, like, the original run, the TOC, where I would kind of spend, like, one to two hours just with, like, a stack of index cards and, like, go through games. Like, I, w- I would definitely would use the wagering calculator. Just make sure you don't make, er- like, arithmetic mistakes and you understand, like, a few of the most common scenarios. That's, like, I think that is just as important as whatever hours you spend on like Shakespeare summaries or like knowing what Dickens novels there are for example or like memorizing Oscar winners definitely for the you know for the regular season I think just understanding for example like the two-thirds rule like what a crush game is and uh how you can kind of win from second that's like a ton of bang for your buck right and maybe that doesn't come super naturally uh but it's really worth like I don't know it's really worth putting that time in. Are there any
0: other categories or clues that are worth mentioning before we move on to game four?
1: Yeah, so in Double Jeopardy, there's this fun wordplay category called Spellimentary, where they're chaining together the names of these chemical elements, and we have to kind of first convert the the chemical elements into their chemical symbols, and then that spells out a word. So one of the clues was like calcium plus iron, right? So we have to convert that to CA plus FE, which is cafe. So we first go to the category and Nobody, like, it seems like nobody's afraid of this. Like, everybody likes this. <laughs> Amy gets the first one. Like, I I get the second one and I go back. I go back with the intention of no matter what, I I think I know this. Like, I'm going to try to buzz in first and just figure out, like, I'm just going to focus on the buzz. And then if I have time, like, I can, I can re- reason this out. The $2,000 one in this category is arsenic plus tellurium plus radon. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to... F- I'm just going to do what I said. Like, I get the buzz in and I start trying to piece it together. And I know that the component, I know the individual components, right? Like, arsenic is AS, tellurium is TE, radon is RN. I add them together and my brain is just like broken at this point. It's like, <laughs> it's like I'm like, Astern, what is Astern? You know? Like, there is no way Astern is a word. So there's a part of me that's like, okay, you can just say, what is Astern? But like, you are going to, you know, you are going to look dumb <laughs> um, so I was trying you know I had like two seconds left I try to figure out what's wrong and then I basically ran out of time and as it turns out like you know there's the the, the tricky part here is that like you can easily put the emphasis on the wrong syllable mm-hmm. um, I actually think Amy got tripped up on this also after that after I got this wrong because it's clearly just like a stern mm-hmm. right and which is like i have not I don't know, I'm not, uh, I don't do a ton of recreational boating. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I don't, you know, it's like, okay, it's the back of the boat. It's like towards the back of the boat. But like, I don't say astern stern like ever. Maybe if I said astern, stern, I would have just gotten credit. Um, anyway, when the episode airs, like I see on Twitter that Ken claim, is like claiming direct responsibility for like, he's like, I thought that, that we should have a tricky one, like in this particular category. So like that was not super fun. Feeling like you kind of got caught up in, like, Professor Ken's like <laughs> magical trap. Um,
0: yeah. Especially because it's, like, minus 2,000, right? That's, like, pretty painful. So, moving on to game four of the finals. It featured a dominant performance by Amy, who maintained her lead for most of the game until Sam found the first daily double in Double Jeopardy. But in the end, Amy finished the round in first, going into final with 25,000, Sam not too far behind with an even 20,000, and Andrew with 6,800. Whereas Amy won game two because of her depth of knowledge, her buzzer timing was what propelled her to victory this time around. In raw attempts, Sam had the most with 50, while Amy and Andrew tied with 47 each. However, Amy's buzz percentage was 60, while Sam's was 40, and Andrew's was 23. Amy was able to respond to about 9-10 to extra clues and earn about $8,600 in extra opportunities to answer through timing. And while Sam did struggle to find his timing in the Jeopardy round, he was able to find his rhythm in Double Jeopardy, earning about $4,900 worth of extra opportunities to answer and respond to three to four extra clues. I wish I could say the same for Andrew, but unfortunately, between having only $1,600 to wager on the first Daily Double, losing the buzzer race to Amy and Sam, and not having the same board control you're used to having to find the Daily Doubles in Double Jeopardy, you were in a tough position going into Final. There was a non-zero chance that... Andrew could have won this game, but the circumstances to make that happen were very unlikely. So, Andrew, did your buzzer malfunction between the third and fourth games where the producers passing out coffee and you just
1: didn't drink a cup? No, the real story is a Karina put gin in uh, my tiny little water bottle. Uh, <laughs> no... Um, I don't have a I don't have a good answer honestly. I knew something was really really off in Double Jeopardy. I think when you're playing against people who really have their timing down, like the skill you really need is to like be able to reliably alter your timing by like twenty or thirty milliseconds or something like that. I don't know. Sometimes in either direction because maybe maybe sometimes you're you're buzzing in too early. I I, I really it's really
0: hard for me to i i think i was just a little slow it's really difficult to say did current ever like come to you during like the commercial break or after the jeopardy rounds and say hey you're coming in too early or too late or is, was that like
1: not no i think it'd be uh, no because uh i think that's more of a regular I, i'm not sure i think that's more of a regular regular season thing because i think in general we're all a little bit more comfortable i think this was my worst buzzer game like ever <laughs> Yeah, I th- I think you said it right, which is that I had just as many attempts as Amy or something like that, and I just got totally crushed. Like, I hadn't ever played against Sam, but one of the things I distinctively remember about Amy is, like, how quickly she was able to, like, take over in Double Jeopardy, right? So I think Amy somehow, like, innately, or or maybe she practiced this, just has, like, a better feel for it than I do.
0: Yeah, the episode of post podium isn't out yet with john folk but in that episode we talked about uh this game specifically um as an example for geometry and yeah he can come up with a good answer either it just comes and goes we concluded
1: there's things you can try like i know like i know matt uh amodio he had a comment at one point that
0: was that was really
1: insightful which is that like if you're good at like the lower value the sorry the harder clues so the the ones that are lower on the board, those tend to be like a little less contested right if you really really focus and you really pay attention a lot of the times you're going to be the only person buzzing in when i press the button like does my like little red light on top of my lectern does that show up immediately or is there like a little delay if there's a little delay like you're probably getting locked out right like you're probably too slow like you're just trying to find small ways to gain like a little bit of information it's really tough though it's really really tough because it's also dependent on what your opponents are doing
0: i'm actually curious now what was your buzzer grip because i know because we all saw that sam had like the two-handed approach with one hand on top and the other hand holding the buzzer what was yours oh right
1: like i i'm definitely like a the school of the fritz hulk nagels uh that like very standard like grip the i had the buzzer in my right hand like kind of grip my left wrist like mm. to minimize like all any excessive movement like just what like what kind of what the doctor orders in uh the seekers of the buzzer book gotcha is the grip yeah
0: good book highly recommend for anyone looking to go on the show According to my calculations, Andrew's minimum wager for this game was 3200, but since he needed to get a final right anyway, he could have wagered everything. Meanwhile, Amy had a few choices of, of wagers. Considering Andrew was one win away from winning the TOC, she could either A, wager 15001 to cover Sam up to 18199, or B, wager somewhere between 1401 and 4999. However, there is some downside to option A, if Amy wagers to cover, gets final wrong, Sam wagers everything, and he gets final wrong, there's a chance Andrew could win if he wagers at least 3200 and gets final right. He beat Amy by $1 to win the TOC, and this is the non-zero chance I was alluding to earlier. So what does Amy do instead? She wagers 6000 which is enough to stay above Andrew's maximum score, and enough to win in a triple stumper if Sam wagers more than 1000 And surely enough, he did. Sam wagered all of his 20,000, dropping him to zero, giving Amy her second win with a final score of 19,000. Now while I do understand Amy's rationale, and I like her conservative wager here for the purposes of denying Andrew complete victory, I think she could have gotten even more conservative by capping her wager at $49.99. If she was betting to win on a triple stumper, wagering at max $49.99 puts her $1 above Sam if he decides to wager zero, which, again, is possible considering he's wagered 0 before, although from third place as opposed to second. Had he wagered 0 in this game, Sam would have won by a 1,000. Now, if I had to guess when considering her wager, Amy was probably thinking something along the lines of, if finals a triple stumper, great, I'll have my second win. If not, Sam's probably going to win since I'm not wagering to cover. And that's fine, because I'd rather give Sam his first win and extend the series over a slight chance of handing Andrew the entire tournament. What do you think, Andrew? I know you can't speak for Amy, but if you were in her position, would you have the same or similar mindset approaching this final? It's really hard to say. Generally, like the attitude
1: around wagering is that there, there's a few easy bang for your buck things, and then there's kind of this like long tail of like more subtle, complicated scenarios, right? I was pretty impressed with uh, Amy's move here. It's one of those like first-to-three scenarios that doesn't show up in the regular season. I haven't really done the math on this, but, like, it's probably true that a bunch of different moves make sense here. And they all just depend on what your assumptions are, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think the natural criticism of Amy's move is, like, well, you know, you can kind of see that, like, Andrew is one for four on, like, sorry, I'm speaking about myself. <laughs> person, but, like, you know, you if I'm Amy, I'm like, oh, well, Andrew's one for four on final. You know, he's not, he's not doing great on final. For him to win, he, like, he needs to get the question right by himself sam needs to go kind of off book like do like something like an all-in so you know is it worth giving up any of the winning chances like i might have to defend against like this probably pretty small scenario right but then you can kind of justify you can kind of justify and you say like if i'm in amy's position like maybe i believe over the long run like i'm actually i'm actually like the best player so like if i concede you know, if I concede like this one, this one thing to to Sam, like fight it another day, like in a, be in a slightly better scenario, Andrew's liable to miss like a uh, all in, eventually, right? So maybe you play to avoid the instant loss. Like maybe that's worth it. It's like, so I don't know. I think if it was, I, I think if it were me, I'm not sure that I would do the same thing. It's it really is a lot to think about in in a few minutes, right? Like yeah. this is what I'm talking about when I. When I say like you wish you could have been prepared for to, to see some of these things like before you encountered them. But like we're 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 kinda like learning on the fly here, I think. You know? I think someone who is better at preparation might have might have like been able to suss out situations like this before making it to the finals, but that wasn't me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this tournament of champions, uh, first of three format is a good learning opportunity for um, if they ever bring this format back for the next tournament of champions or whenever they do another first of three, they can, you know, learn from your wagers, like what the thought process was. So if this ever comes back in the future, players are better prepared for these scenarios that you found yourself in. Because this was a format that hadn't been used since the GOAT tournament in twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, yeah. I believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I don't know I actually am not sure I can't remember, but I don't I don't really think some of these uh, like I don't think this particular scenario popped up, but I I could be wrong about that. Like in in that in that um, format, because you know there was a two one lead at some point, but I I think maybe Brad was not as big of a factor. Yeah, I'm he was sure. particularly
0: <laughs> struggling. I remember from that uh, tournament. Last comment about this final. I actually don't dislike Sam's all in wager here, considering what Amy has to do to prevent Andrew from winning the tournament. It's the perfect opportunity to stray away from what I'd recommend, which is wagering somewhere between. 5,001 and 6399 beating a zero wager from Amy and staying above Andrew's maximum score moving on to game five of the finals in spite of having the lowest Koryat score no help from any daily doubles the least number of attempts the lowest score on buzz percentage and was at one point in the red at negative 2800 Sam managed to eke out his first finals victory. This one's a bit weird in that I don't remember this game being particularly outstanding for any of you three. I mean, at one point Amy had a score that was more than five times Sam's who was in second with 1600, but that lead quickly evaporated after Sam responded correctly to three consecutive clues early in double jeopardy. Now, while Andrew was fortunate enough to find the second and third daily doubles back to back as the ninth and tenth clues in double jeopardy, a miss on the paint samples daily double cost him all of his 10,000, putting him at a major deficit. From here, Amy maintains the lead going into final, finishing with 15-8, Sam not too far behind with 11-2, and Andrew with 6,800. The category for final was English cities. Sam and Amy both got final right, but a collective gasp could be heard from the audience as Amy opted not to wager to cover Sam for the same reason as in Game 4 to prevent Andrew from winning the tournament, even if it meant giving Sam his first win. Knowing what had happened in Game 4, Andrew, were you expecting Amy to wager to shut you out rather than wager to cover Sam? We know the audience was surprised, but are you able to say the same? I don't think I expected it. I thought
1: it was a possibility after seeing that Game 4 bet. But then I looked at the category, you know, English cities, it seems very, very wheelhouse for Amy based on what I know of Amy. I'm not sure if I gasped or anything either. I do remember after it was all revealed that, that, that Sam had won his first game, like the roar from the crowd at that moment was just incredible. I, I think I entirely had blocked out like audience, like clapping, gasping, any, you know, any rumblings from over there. But like that is the one memory I have of how happy everybody was to uh, see Sam get one.
0: Yeah, I think at this point, while it was airing, um, I was hoping Sam would at least put one on the board just to make it more exciting and possibly force a seven-game series. I think a lot of people shared that feeling watching it from home. A few more questions for you, Andrew, before we move on to Game Six: Was the paint samples daily double something you 100% didn't know? It was not. Uh, it was
1: not like unfamiliar to me. Like the clue for this daily double was: "Don't try to pet the cat in." A tricky canvas by a French guy who invented a, like a French term basically. I don't remember but I don't think this, this was an image clue. So the only thing I kind of fixated on this which is wrong is uh the cat. You know I was again in this like wrong mode of like not doing comprehension and just trying to connect words that I that I saw. So I was like well cat in French is sha right like do I know any art terms that like have that like ultimately like I've heard of trompe l'oeil like if you look up in J Archive, like all the times this has ever come up, I think it also accompanies like the term optical illusion. So it's like a little switcheroo, right? You like hide you like hide the optical illusion like behind like a phrase that you know is more like this is a tricky canvas. Like you don't explicitly say optical illusion and that like kind of breaks like the pattern matching, right? And just for a second there, like I'm not able to I'm not able to make that connection.
0: Alright, we're in the home stretch now, as we get to Game 6, the last game of the TOC Finals. Sam was the fastest on the buzzer, getting in 52% of the time, but similar to Game 5, he had some real trouble with accuracy. Sam had 6 incorrect responses, including the first daily double, and finished with a score on buzz percentage of 34%. What's more is that Sam actually found all 3 daily doubles, but he wasn't able to capitalize on them as much as he could've. In the Jeopardy round, Sam went all in on the first daily double, but unfortunately he got it wrong, resetting him to 0, giving Andrew a much bigger lead. But that lead was far from safe, as Amy responded correctly to 5 consecutive clues taking the lead away from Andrew, and maintaining it for the remainder of the round. In Double Jeopardy, Sam found the second daily double as the first clue of the round, but he could only wager the table limit since his score was less than 2,000. Sam found the third daily double as the tenth clue, but he wagered less than half his score to reach an even 10,000. I was wondering what could have happened if Sam went all in here, but even if he did, he'd still be in third going into final. Everyone was pretty much even in terms of time and solo value, so by the end of Double Jeopardy, everyone was in contention for final. Amy was in the lead with 15-6, Andrew in second with 14-2, and Sam in third with 8,000. With how close Andrew was to Amy, Amy had to get final right to win, and lo and behold, she did, this time wagering enough to cover Andrew's maximum score. Still, I was a fan of both Andrew and Sam's wagers here. Andrew wagered 28-01, which was enough to A, win under Triple Stumper. B, cover Sam's maximum score. And with C, more than enough to account for the off chance Sam wagers nothing. But the only way for Sam to win is if he's the only one to get final right. So he might as well wager everything. Now, I thought this final clue was pretty easy watching from home. I mean, the date provided should have been enough to tell you what famous event coincided with the performance. Did you feel the same, Andrew? If you did, do you remember what your thoughts were like as the last few seconds of the Think music played?
1: Yep. When I saw this clue and the way we all started writing immediately like maybe even like before the think music starts i don't know i pretty much knew i was done here it went through my head that like unless amy accidentally writes something like like uh our armenian cousin or something like that like by accident i'm just done like donezo but you know, I guess stranger things have happened, right? <laughs> it's like GG in that moment. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like GG. Like, I, th- I think if, uh, like, I remember it-, it was fun for me to, like, watch my own face mm-hmm. because it's like, I don't know, I can kind of tell, like, there's a subtle difference between, like, my, my normal poker face and
0: just, like, my, like, you know, I'm kind of resigned here. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other categories or clues in game six that are worth mentioning before we wrap up our game analysis and discussion?
1: So maybe the single clue that I've, have thought about the most is the $1,600 clue in Double Jeopardy in the PJ category. In 1979, this architect famous for his glass house in Connecticut was the first recipient of the Pritzker Prize. This clue, like, matches up super well with, like, you know, the whole pattern matching thing. And I know that this is Philip Johnson. And I just say, who's Johnson? You know, I know that the answer is Philip Johnson. But, you know, Sam is the one who chooses this category, right? So there's like a little bit of the, I didn't choose this, you know, I'm not going to pin all of the, all of the forgetting of the, the category requirement here, right? Which is PJ, like you have to, you have to give both the first and the last name so that it matches the category, right? I think there's a, just a little, little bit of an effect from not being the person to select the category. So you don't, you get a little less of an opportunity to, to like recall that like there's a special requirement here, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So obviously that is a wrong answer. You know, that's a $3,200 swing because I I did know the answer, right? You know, if, you're, if you look at the results from there, then maybe I have the lead in final instead of Amy, right? Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll I d- dissect the situation a little bit more, which is like some of this is off of Sam bouncing in the categories, right? Like I think if you ask some people, do you want to like go take stuff top down or do you want to bounce around? You know, the argument for top down is that if there's some context that the earlier clues can give you for the later clues or the kind of reminder, a lot of people are concerned with how it'll affect like their own ability to come up with the answer, right? Like if I jump into a category right away, like I might not really be able to answer it. Like I need, maybe I need the warm up or something, but I think this situation like shows a little bit of the flip side where Sam doing the bounce, like actually, it, you know, you can make a case that it like somewhat affects me more than him. Like definitely. I just forgot about this and, and it's not like I don't I don't think Sam did this intentionally or whatever I'm not saying that he's you know he's mostly just hunting for the daily double but and hunt it, and bouncing around is a good way to do that but you know every few games there is like a category that has like a requirement like this right and you kind of sometimes you get the opportunity to catch catch an opponent off guard I'm not saying you're like trying to win by making people say wrong answers right but that dynamic like definitely exists and mm. it definitely comes about as of bouncing so. I think that's an interesting thing to point out. Like, you know, when you're, if you, if you think about whether you're bouncing or not, like it doesn't necessarily just affect you. It, 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 you know, it could also be an advantage or a disadvantage uh, for another player.
0: So looking back on your TOC performance a few months later, is there anything about the way you play that still amazes you to this day? Do you have any regrets or think about if things went differently during games four and five, any final thoughts before we move on to the TOC aftermath? I'll start with regrets. Um, I think it'd be really helpful,
1: and very healthy, to not hold any real regrets. Uh, but there's definitely a lot to there's definitely a lot to mull over. Watching these games again, you're like you're reminded of the times you, you know you got smoked in game four, game five. Um, we just talked about Philip Johnson. Like uh, I'm two for eight in final Jeopardy in this tournament. Like all that being said, like you come like you to come really that close. If you were sure that you played your best games. In mostly across the whole tournament, you'd feel like overwhelmingly pretty good, I would say. But I think if you have a couple things to, to overanalyze and point to, like that regret might, you might might be dealing with that for a little bit. To your other question, which is, uh, is there anything about, uh, the game about the games that were that I find to be amazing? I I think one of the really cool things was not like any particular game play moment, but it's hearing from certain people like namely uh former toc contestants uh after all or like during or after all these games like i got messages from ben ingram who like he won the toc in 2013 uh i got a message from roger craig like these are all great messages like roger craig won the 2011 toc uh alex jacob was like really following along (laughs) and just like getting really pumped my favorite was like larissa kelly from 2009 toc She sent me a message that was like, welcome to the runner's up club, you know, and I was like, that feels super good. No exaggeration. Those are some of the people that like were instrumental in me even wanting to be on the show in the first place. Right. Like I've been Um, a fan for like a really long time. You know, it's a good reminder that the community is is awesome. And, you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really cost anything to like make someone's day. Right. mm -hmm. Along with the regrets. Like I will also carry
0: like the feeling of I don't know, it's like the, the feeling that you made it. Right. So Amy wins the TOC. You guys taped four games, so I imagine it's probably the late afternoon slash early evening. We all saw on Twitter that a couple of you stuck around to celebrate that night with some drinks and karaoke. Could you share with us one fun memory of that night capping off would have been an absolute banger of a TOC?
1: Yes. So karaoke there, there is a food hall like right across the street from the Culver Hotel, which we're all staying at, which happens to have like, live karaoke on Thursday nights. We're lucky enough that the tournament ended on Thursday, and I don't think anybody actually knew that this was a thing. We just kind of were like, okay, we need a place to get something to eat. And then we walk into the patio, and it's just, like, a a live band. We had really good attendance. Like, I think we found out that, like, the real grand prize of the TOC is not, like, $250,000. It's, like, getting to see Erica Hasek and John Folk, like, sing Shania Twain, (laughs) like, top of their lungs, right? I think a couple folks from... Last year's TOC showed up as well. After karaoke, like, a bunch of us went back to, like, the hotel lobby and we just kind of, like, nerded it out about the tournament and still, like, because we had just been through this kind of, like, crazy thing. It was really, like, a a great cap off of the of the whole tournament.
0: So in November 2022, so last month of when we're recording this, uh, 2021 TOC winner Sam Cavanaugh posted a thread on Twitter about how he stopped watching Jeopardy shortly after he won the title and trophy. It's a fascinating thread, I highly recommend you read it, but the gist of why you stopped watching Jeopardy is because being on the Alex Trebek stage, you, the contestant, find yourself in a flow state. You're dialed in, ready on the buzzer, and nothing else matters for those 30 minutes. That's a feeling that can't be replicated anywhere else, not even by playing from the comfort of your own home. For Sam, it felt nearly impossible to enjoy Jeopardy casually without having to think about the amount of preparation he did leading up to his initial appearance. So my question for you, Andrew, is now that the hype and anticipation from the TOC has died down, what's your relationship with Jeopardy like now compared to what it was like maybe a year ago? Did you experience a post Jeopardy hangover of some sort like Sam or have you been keeping up with Chris Panulo's 21 game win streak and the rest of season 39? Ray Lalonde is the current champion, actually, right now.
1: I like the term uh, my relationship with this sh- with the show Jeopardy It sounds very official like me and Jeopardy are like going we're going steady. I totally understand what Sam is talking about. I think in this thread he mentioned I'm, I'm not sure maybe this is a conversation I had with him separately. I'm pretty sure he mentioned like you your fight or flight instincts kick in. Right. Which is part of what makes it kind of difficult to watch like prepping for just recording this, like re all of my own games. It's not a calm, hmm. even though I know exactly I'm what I'm sorry happens. I had to put you
0: through that. <laughs> no, 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 no.
1: It's like, it, it's not, it's not like a calm viewing experience because, you know, you, you, you just like, something spikes, right, in your body. Like maybe it's you hear the opening music and like it's like hair raising or something like that. So in terms of, keeping up with season thirty nine, like I've caught a few of everybody's games, but it's definitely like harder to watch casually because you start to think you start to get back. You're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna like I gotta track my score now. Like I gotta see how I match up against, you know yeah. how, how do I match up against Chris Panulo. You have do, to do that to you don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> how do I match up? Yeah, yeah, but like I think, you know, you're in you're you're just in it for so long, right? And like they expanded this field, this TOC field, like it was twenty one people. You had to kind of keep track of like 20 other people and think about like how you know maybe some people were were, were able to get above this you know but I, I was like down in the weeds you know like trying to trying to understand um matchups and that sort of thing i don't know if i have the, exactly the same exactly the same relationship that sam does with the show but there's definitely like more to untangle right it's like I, i'm not exactly sure like when it'll be kind of just like the relaxing sit on the couch like yell the answers out without feeling like I have to be in a competitive mode.
0: I should probably mention that to round off that Twitter thread, Sam talks about how getting to watch this year's TOC in person reinvigorated his passion for the game. He thanks the producers for inviting him back and hopes to one day compete on the Alex Trebek stage to play a game of Jeopardy that's as thrilling and competitive as the ones in this year's TOC. Last two questions for you, Andrew, before we wrap up our conversation here today. They're questions I actually haven't asked my guests in a while, but I think we'd all like to know, A, What's next for you in terms of a career? Are you still working as a software dev? And B, what are you going to do with the money, or what have you already done with the money?
1: Yeah. So career wise, uh, you know, I'm I'm not Amy Schneider. Not much is to, not too much is changing. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm sticking with software. I do want to say, going through the process, I I learned a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff through stuff like YouTube, I, and I definitely had the idea of. Um, Maybe trying to find something that dovetails like software, YouTube, um, try to kind of give back to this like, you know, I know you're a content creator also, but it's, it's kind of like the first time I've ever really thought about like uh, may, maybe I, I need some like hobby project kind of around creating some educational content. Maybe I have like an interesting angle on this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's like a little too cliche to want to wanna try to be a writer or co- content content maker like a post jeopardy mm. but it, it really like does get get uh get that going in terms of like what i want to do in the future the money like yeah it's pretty mundane like <laughs> one of my friends he was nice enough to to host like a bunch of the watch parties at his house so like definitely had to grab a nice dinner with him like just as a way of you know saying thank you like thank you for letting us like have your house as this like three week extravag extravaganza like plays out but, uh, you know, if I had to give like the Jeopardy answer, <laughs> like, that's not mundane and not like, oh, I bought a desk or something like it's I think I should probably commission Sam Buttry to like write and perform some sort of song. <laughs> like once his fame like dies down a little bit and like the price, you know, maybe the price comes down or something like that. That seems like a total, total good use of money.
0: 100 percent. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Now, before I let you go, where can people find you online? And if there's anything you'd like to plug or anyone you'd like to shout out, go right ahead.
1: Cool. Uh, I'm very loosely on Twitter. Uh, My handle is gg underscore Andrew He. If you try to find me online, you'll probably find uh, the other Andrew He, who is not me. He is uh, like a superstar in the world of also programming. Yeah, good chance you'll find him instead. Uh, Shout out wise, like uh, if anybody from the rest of the... Uh, 2022 TOC folks like if they're listening to this like uh, I definitely miss everybody hope our paths cross you know and uh, let's see I will plug I will just put in a word for uh, kind of like public libraries in general I would say during the whole Jeopardy process I came to really understand how much like public libraries can can do for like just like an average person trying to like learn stuff and then you realize that that's only, like, 0.5% of the stuff that that system really does. You know, if you can kind of go out and see if there's a way you can support, like, children's story time or adult uh, literacy or, you know, providing good spaces for people just to be, like, that that's the plug. That's it. Public libraries. They're the best thing we have, right, like, going on right now.
0: I'll also interject by saying if you're a librarian out there, I highly recommend you audition for Jeopardy. There's a good chance that you'll be the next Jeopardy giant killer based on the patterns we've seen in recent years. Totally. (laughs) It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you once again for taking some time to speak with me today. And now this is when I close out the show by asking you to please rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Post Podium is available on all sorts of listening platforms, including Amazon Music, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. So make sure to follow and subscribe for the latest episodes. I've been your host, Jarek Bruel. And remember, if someone asks what you're listening to... Always phrase your response in the form of a question. What is post-podium? See you next time.